right, guys. Uh, episode six is here, and I'm here with a very familiar face. If you guys have been watching the previous episodes, I'm obviously here with my friend Max. But a few things have changed since the last time we conversed. So if you want to give the people a little update as to what you've been doing, now's the time. Here you go. Uh, hello, uh, the audience of the Political Adventurists. My name is Max Mitrofanov, and uh, I am running for mayor of New York City. A lot has changed since the last time we've talked uh, on this podcast. Um, you know, my plans for the past several months have gone into fruition. My ambitions have, uh, you know, finally taken hold of my actions and, uh, we're really getting this thing done. We're running as an independent party for New York city, which is going to be huge on the scale of political, uh, advancement for any level of government. So, you know, we're working on it. I already got a team up and running. We're going to be doing local community outreach, small organizations. We're going to be trying to truly represent the people of New York. And I'm so happy that I was invited back on this podcast. I really appreciate that. I appreciate you carving the time out to come on with all the interviews you've been doing and truly interacting with the community. Now, that being said, just a few uh, preliminary questions before we go into your policies. What makes you think that what de Blasio is doing could be or is worse than what you could potentially be doing or other potential candidates in the two-party system? What makes you the designated person for this position? Well, you know, if you look at any level of government, there is no such thing as being the designated person to take the position whatsoever. There is a time and place for everything. And right now, as we've seen with the presidential election, as we've seen with the strong polarity between the people, between Democrats and Republicans, that now is just not the time for the same old either Democratic or Republican representative to take the position of mayor of one of the, the, one of the most influential cities in the world, especially in a time of crisis right now. If okay. a democratic if a democratic representative comes into power, you know, God knows what direction they will take. You know, the city will he take the same uh, or she take the same direction as De Blasio, which has you know basically unified the city into hating him. You know, as he is truly just a puppet of the Democratic Party at this point, or will they take some new approach? But frankly. With all of these, um, you know, developments, I doubt that something like that will happen. That some new uh, idea, a new, um, new thought individual will come into power. So, I am making more of a statement than actually running for mayor. As much as I do have a plan for New York City, as much as I do have uh, intentions to do the best I could for it. The primary reason I'm doing this is to show that the two-party system in its current state is extremely inefficient, ineffective, and does not truly represent the people on any scale, whether it be local, state, or national. And that if for an independent, you know, grassroots candidate to truly succeed in the political machine, everything must work bottom up, not top down. That's why my biggest, uh, you know, people say, Max, why aren't you running as a libertarian, right? They keep jabbing at the presidential position, but you can't 
you know, try to take that position when you don't have a foundation. And what we're trying to do is create a grassroots foundation for a movement of politicians, if you want to call them, but representatives that truly represent the people because they are one point those people. I think that's an incredibly strong answer. And it, it actually shows the two different routes we've taken to address this problem as I consider it so much of a problem like you do. Uh, that the two-party system clearly doesn't represent us and has instead led to polarization that only benefits them and their respective media outlets and things like that, which I, I've discussed in prior episodes. And the two routes we've taken, obviously, I've kind of just started a discussion forum where anyone can come on and, you know, just give their general opinion. You've kind of actually done more than that. You've kind of put your foot into the government system a little bit here. Or at least, are you are trying to. to? You're attempting you know, to. We're attempting. Um, but I think that's very commendable. The direct approach you're taking. So, uh, to begin this discussion or interview, whatever you want to call it, um, what are the key policies to you? Representation. I know I looked at the document you have set up. What are these key policies to you? Lay them out for the people. What's important? All to right. You? So as of right now, New York City is in crisis. Right. We have a huge amount of debt in the city. Right. And, you know, there are different approaches to try to uh, fix and alleviate this debt. Currently, the Biden administration is trying to impose, I believe, a 62 percent tax on all individuals who are making over four hundred thousand dollars plus. Um, however, then the Republicans are kind of, you know, in a disarray on how to actually solve the issue of, you know, repaying the debt that COVID, the COVID stimulus checks and the other COVID benefits um have uh you know have brought um so the first issue that we like me and you know the rest of new york will be trying to tackle is alleviating new york city's debt um personally if we were to tax you know the top one percent which mind you are paying for a substantial if not amount of our social programs in fact more than the entire middle class combined um if we were to tax them at such a high rate we would only draw them out of the city and the city would go bankrupt and i i truthfully feel that if that 62 percent tax plan were to go into fruition new york city would suffocate it would suffocate so for me tax breaks credits and incentives for small and local businesses to once again reopen and trying to reopen all of the local businesses that have closed during COVID-19, trying to, you know, bring the working common man back to its place, trying to rebuild the middle class, trying to, trying to make the middle class the center of the economy, not the top 1% center of the economy. We're trying to bring it back to the common man. We're trying to uh, make Wall Street have their return, the Wall Street execs have their return back to New York City so that they can continue to pay their dues and contribute to the city. And we're going to try to see, you know, as an independent, which would be extremely difficult, work with the federal government to have temporary investment and relief. Secondly, we're going to be trying to mend relationships with the NYPD. The people in the NYPD have been at it for the past year or so. If we are to have a safe and functional society, we need to have good relations with the NYPD. Reforms will probably be needed to pass. I have an interview with a detective tomorrow 
and uh, I will, you know, go in depth on um, what needs to be done from uh, her perspective. But you no, know, this will not be the only uh, member of the NYPD that I will be uh, interviewing and discussing with. Um, but in order for there to be a slow and gradual progress towards bringing the public and the NYPD back on good terms, first, we have to evaluate the budget of the NYPD. There's a lot of talk thrown around, defund the police, abolish the police. No. Look at the budget of the NYPD. What are they spending their money on? What resources are going where? And based off of that, in the most rational and logical way possible, figure out what needs reform, what needs to stay, and then we move on from there. Because, and if we need to work with the NYPD to make the city safe, again, for citizens to go out and not have to fear of the dangers of walking alone in a dark place at night, we have to make it safe for tourists to be able to safely come here and revitalize our commercial business. And lastly, is to clean up New York City. Another, you've been a... Uh, you know, up in the hills, in uh, Binghamton up there. But down here, it's a, little bit, um, it's a little bit of a different story. The streets are quite literally covered with piss. It's, it's terrible because restaurants are closed and access to laboratories are, you know, not there. So people urinate in the street. Story time. I was uh, in Washington Square Park last week and a woman urinated in front of me. She squatted and urinated in front of me. It was bizarre. Like I've never seen a more disrespect for the public area in my life. Yeah. So, creating a clean and safe environment for New York City citizens and their businesses to flourish in. That will be um, one of them. And lastly, it will be to provide working opportunities and a long-term relief for the homeless, which have, as of right now... Like plagued the streets, not the homeless people themselves, but the uh, the issue of homelessness, which is, in my opinion, terrible. Shelters are like over flooded, overfilled, and we need to provide them with some sort of financial opportunity to get them back on their feet. That's the three primary concerns right now as an agenda. However, if you want to go into it. Um, you know, we, we have plans to completely reform the incarceration systems in New York City, trying to set an example for rehabilitation over incarceration, reforming the drug laws. I know that the current administration is trying to legalize marijuana. Um, you know, I'm very happy about that for multiple reasons. And most importantly, the uh, plans and layouts for infrastructure works in the city in order to make it far more efficient and try to create new, uh, preferably green uh, commercial and industrial sectors. Lastly, as of right now, our concern is education, health education, uh, public school education, the funding of New York City um, educational programs must be the same for every single student in the public systems. There are programs currently in place that try to even that out along the way, but I have a team of researchers, you know, diving deep into how much is every student getting per school throughout the city? Once we have more information on that, we will release it and uh, we'll make our claims come true. But apart from that, 
that's as of right now our current agenda. But you know, things do change, and um, if you you know follow them on social media, everything will be posted. And I'll definitely drop the uh, the plugs there somewhere in the uh, description or in the video. Um, so uh, just a general policy question. You you bring up a lot of truly nonpartisan things. You want to improve the social structure of New York by helping the unfor helping the the helpless, I guess you could say, while also not running the elite, the best and brightest, as you put in your video, out of New York with high taxes. Just a question: How do you think, on the floors of Congress, as you put it in your in the last time we were here, how do you think you can accomplish these nonpartisan goals? With such heavy partisan, I don't think a Republican, say in, in the assemblies of New York, would want to uh, ha focus on allocating tax dollars to what he believes is an unruly and unneeded cause. And I also don't think a Democrat or a left-leaning assemblyman in that respect would also even congresswoman. Yep, yep. I would also agree. want to, yeah would also want to uh, lower taxes for you know to seemingly make it easier on big business that already have it easy. You know, so how can you? Truly, as someone that's coming out of the political unknown, how will you be able to find that middle ground is the question here. So as of right now, my campaign is trying to use social media to the best of its ability. Now, you must remember that the majority of individuals, you know, across America are rather centrist. They don't necessarily fall like extremely far right or extremely far left they are just influenced by what is around them you know for example i'm a rather i'm a pretty centrist person i have i believe that every single issue must be taken piece by piece and i think that having a doctrine uh you know that works in one area will most definitely not work in another area um so the funniest thing is that congressman congresswoman asasio uh cortez I find huge inspiration from her because she managed to get an entire grassroots movement in New York City to support her causes. Uh, however much I disagree with them, there is a huge amount of respect for the amount of work and dedication that she puts for her constituents. And I think that all politicians should take her model of the uh, engaging with the people and having all of your funding from the people who you are serving. I think that is a huge respect to that. And to the question of how are you going to accomplish such a feat? If I were to be elected or if any other independent were to be elected and the entire motto behind their uh, program is to emphasize the needs of the New Yorker or the needs of any other constituent in any other city, it does not really matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're extremely right or you're extremely left. If there is enough public outcry for certain level-headed policy, the people who are in the representative positions will oblige their constituents. And I really do believe that if you don't far too left or too right, and you keep yourself center, and you keep yourself, you know, in a funny way of saying it, based in reality uh, to solve your issues one by one. I think that 
the, the representatives will eventually come to some sort of consensus and agreement on what to do. If they are truly feasible solutions and sustainable solutions to the issue. I think that's a very strong answer. I think the issue that we have is something that you brought up in the document, is how can we truly relate with people that are so much older than us? You brought up the average 60-year-old in the, in the Congress or some statistics similar to that. Yeah, roughly 60 years in the 115th. Although now in this co Congress, they're a, f a far bit younger, but I do believe that the number is still pretty high up. So there's still an age gap and there's still a money gap, and I think by providing this completely un I guess you could say tampered way unpartisan or bi bipartisan and unpartisan way of you know just looking for what's best for your state and what's best for your city obviously you're running for mayor then I think that that could be a good way to compromise on ideals so I think that's an interesting point um my next question was actually going to be about the election, which we didn't really get into yet, but I wanted to touch on that as it's been such a huge topic lately. You have a lot of you have a lot of interesting ideas about the election, as I read in your document, which is something that I recommend people find once you officially publish it, or how obviously you're. I'll be publishing it. I actually came to the realization that with all the stuff that's going on, I will be publishing it piece by piece, and when it is finally done. God willing, I will publish the entire document as a as a piece. Excellent. So uh, you have a very passionate subject on the elections, the stat, maybe you know the status of the election, the electoral college, and you personally are a very big proponent through all of your policies. What I've seen is you're a very big proponent of representation. So how does that play into what you would like to see elections become in America? Oh, you're talking about presidential? I guess you could say on any stage, like because, local, because local, local. If you're talking about the presidential election, we're going to be talking about the electoral college, and you right. know that I have a very, uh, you know, ra not necessarily too radical, but different approach uh, to the electoral college, um, that which requires a far greater societal movement as a whole. Right. Well, I and think. You, but I think that when we, because I, I want to talk about the presidential election, because the local elections and the smaller scale, I guess you could say, such as mayor and assemblyman, are really direct. It's really just direct. They are direct. It's, it's really just voting. It doesn't go through delegates like it does with the Electoral College. There isn't a district dividend here. So we'll, we'll stick with the presidential election, because it when you talk about the presidential election, you're talking more so about like even a mindset of like giving more power to the people. So we can kind of transition into something like that. So basically, how can we improve representation in the U.S. election is the question, the presidential election. Well, I wrote about in the doctrine, and I will be posting uh, the first several um, pieces very soon, that the two-party system in the United States does not serve the American people no more. And I theorize that within the next coming decades, truthfully, we will begin to have truly independent um, representatives in Congress and eventually in the presidential seat, which will be absolutely phenomenal um, due to the um, exposure of social media and, you know, outreach of you know one individual on an entire mass of of uh, their con the constituents, so in the current state, the electoral college only serves the two parties. The you know winner takes all mentality. I mean you know policy where for example in um, New York where we have twenty nine electoral uh, votes. You know, all of them would go Democratic, even though, you know, there are some districts that are red and there are some that are blue. 
in my ideal system, before we can transition to a popular vote, which would be the most direct form of representation, before we can do that, and I'm not even advocating for a popular vote because, you know, direct democracy is dangerous. Um, the ideal system, if there were to be representatives that were independent, to have every single elector by district vote on behalf of their constituents. But the, again, this would be extremely difficult to achieve unless we have individual policymakers, independent policymakers in power. So before we can change that, before we can really truly to reform the representation of people in the United States, we as a you know generation and you know as educators must take on the responsibility of really diving deep into who is representing me, who will represent me, and what can I do as a voter to really better my community. That is the first step responsibility, fiscal responsibility, you know, self-responsibility, and social-political responsibility are the first three steps before we go anywhere else. So that's where I'm going to leave it right now because it's a lot to talk about. And, you know, again, the stress is we must take responsibility for our actions because what's going on in the current election right now with Biden and with Trump is a lack of our responsibility to care for who is going to be in power or who is going to be the delegate for the president. You know, all of these things are our own fault by the end of it. So in order to remedy any issue in the United States, we must take responsibility for our actions first. So you seem to pride heavily on the power of the individual. And I think what you're talking about when it comes to how the Electoral College and the federal government's operations uh, really serves a two-party system. I think you can see that clearly in gerrymandering, log rolling, all these congressional tactics to try to gain one edge for a party. And that's why I think it's interesting that Mitch McConnell was is, is a little bit hesitant on backing Trump immediately because he's already done his job. At that point, he couldn't really care if it's Trump. Well, it's, I don't want to say he couldn't really care if it's Trump or Biden, but I don't think he really cares about the Trump agenda now. He cares about how he set up his party. He has control of the Senate. Yes. I believe still that's still variable as the election is still being called. And he has a overwhelming majority in the Supreme Court, which is huge as they obviously... Huge. Which is huge obviously as they interpret the law. So I think those are interesting points to you bring to, to interrupt, the fact that we even have judges that are like right-leaning or left-leaning, that is, I think, the final stake in the coffin of are these judges really bipartisan? The fact that we have to name them just because the president elected them, appointed them, that is dangerous already because they're supposed to be bipartisan. Regardless, I mean, this is for Democrats and Republicans. They must be independent, and independent presidents or independent leaders as a whole, will appoint independent people. I think that's what George Washington designed, too, is that the office of the president in and of itself, as well as obviously the offices of the justices, are really supposed to be nonpartisan. That's actually a key point that I like about what Joe Biden's saying. I'm not going to just ignore the good parts of whatever, you know, side I didn't vote for. Obviously, to, I did to, to To ignore either side to, for party affiliation is extremely ignorant and truthfully disrespectful. Right. So what I like what he's saying, and what makes me a little bit more comfortable than to say another Democrat figure was leading, 
is that he says that he runs proudly as a Democrat, but he will govern as an American president. I think that's those are important words, albeit they are just words, and Trump said a lot of words, and Kamala Harris has <laughs> said a lot of words. Um, words. But I think that really it, it, the meaning behind it is something that's definitely neat. I think that's what he's capitalizing. He appealed to people in the Republican sector. He appeal, appealed to certain moderate Democrats. I think what he's truly going for is this centrist thing. Now, obviously, whether he can hold power or not is a totally different story as this kind of, you know, Ryan and I debate this whether there's a big tent or not. That's obviously a different issue. Uh, I want to take this chance to move on to the role of education, considering you talked about the voters' role, and it's right that they should be educated, and you kind of pointed to this in the beginning. But what do you think about, just a general synopsis, what's your plan, you know, what are your thoughts? The we'll, we'll start with the local level, and then we'll start with the federal level. What do you think about voter education, education in general? What are your thoughts on that specifically? Well, I think that, especially with the 2020 election, the vote of voter, you know, I don't want to say it's education, but um, advertisement was phenomenal. The fact that, you know, your local leaders or your national leaders are, you know, incentivizing you to go vote is huge. However, if you are going to vote blindly, you know... Settle for Biden. You know, don't... I don't want to say don't vote, but please think and, you know, think for yourself. Don't let another individual think for you before you go vote, regardless of your, what side you're supporting. You know, to Trump supporters, it's the same thing. I know many of them who will blindly support the man, even though they don't even know exactly what he's done. And the same thing for Joe Biden, you know, the history of him and his vice president, a vice president-elect. Um... So for education of voters, it's up to the individual. It's a societal push. It's not something that you can enforce by law. You know, that would be infringing on your right to pursue your happiness, really. It's a, it ha it's a societal agenda. And if enough people truly say, you know what, listen, I want to think for myself. I don't want you telling me what to do, what to vote for, because I feel this way. You might feel this way. That is the healthiest growth that we can possibly have in this nation. If we're talking about voter education, if, I mean, if there's some other kind of education that you want to talk about. So you have a, well, okay, so I want to address that point first, that you have a very individualized concept, but isn't it also possible to reason? While I totally agree with people voting for their individual candidates, I'm totally a proponent of voting third party, even though the chance of success is slim, obviously. If, if as of right now. As, as of, right of right now. now. As of right now, that's subject to change, but there are fund disparities as well as things like that. But I think a very big issue that I'm seeing right now, and I think it's something you're touch upon, touching upon, that's what I said. I kind of cut you off a little bit to say that. The idea of settling for a camp, uh, settling for a president without knowing his own policies, the, the desire to herd sheep into a pen to vote for a president, I think, is nothing short of suppressing free speech. And that's why I don't like pages that advocate for settling for Biden or settling for Trump, because it's only targeting their party's growth. It's not targeting what could potentially be good or bad for the country. And that's why I think, you know, th the only issue to that that I see, though, is if people vote libertarian to enshrine their gun rights and say a Democrat wins and they could have coalesced under Trump, who would also protect their gun rights, 
they're going to look at the third third party vote, be proud of it, and then lose their gun rights because a Democrat president was elected. So, what do you think about that type of individualism? Kind of like the balance between it will you know, it will take you know a question. lot of sacrifice. You know, it will be many, many years before we have a functional individual policy. In fact, you know, it's a long stretch, mind you, but I am really hoping that, you know, going back to Miss uh, Congresswoman Cortez, that she and her uh, her squad, if you, ever, you know what I'm talking about, they're like with uh, Congresswoman Omar. Yeah, uh, they're like the squad. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. hope that they break away from the Democratic Party. I hope that they become so popular that they can break away. That would be very ideal. And be, it would be ideal. It would be huge in the scheme of American politics. Huge. huge. Uh, I hate that. I hate that I'm doing that. But mm-hmm. it would be enormous, right? However much I disagree with what her policies are saying, the fact that a fully grass grass you know grassroots movement was able to completely separate from the democratic party would be enormous and i hope that they will uh, one day see that you know forging their own path would be the correct way to approach their um approach their problems um so actually i have i have two points regarding that because mr McCule, as you know was our gov teacher he brought up this concept of individualism versus national security, of liberty versus security, and of freedom versus true political victory. Um, Bernie Sanders, I think, disappointed me a little bit. And despite me not oh. but I, despite me not really agreeing with a lot of his policies, he has a very high tax bracket for the top 1%, and I don't think that's really how you enshrine the lower classes, I think. as you, I actually agree with what you're saying now that I've read over the document that economic opportunity, if truly pushed for the top 1%, could definitely help the lower classes. Obviously, it's a slightly naive thought, but whatever. That that not. So was any any government policy. Obviously, naive. that notwithstanding, I think he should have sep- truly separated from the Democrat Party. He says oh, definitely. He says he runs as an independent, but he debates on the Democrat Party floor, and he says he you know he moves towards Democrat socialism, but he nominates a moderate Democrat, and that's why this idea. It disappoints me a little bit that despite him being such a pioneer for his own ideology, he's fallen back into the loop of the Democrat Party, which I think could be either his own desire to see his party win, which I think is not good for the country. Probably is, but it's not healthy for the country. Or a form of coercion. It's not totally out of line to suggest that the Democrat Party or Republican Party are coercing its most influent members. You know what I mean? So there's that point. And then there's the point that Mr. McCullough brought up in our Gov class, which was that if we were to truly allow the parties, independent parties, to flourish and these different sects to develop, it's entirely possible, I think he mentioned the 80s or 90s, that the Communist Party that was present in the U.S., could have actually taken hold of the New York State District of New York. Yes, you've heard that thing. So, what do you think about that? Is 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 you know is that totally acceptable? if 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 even if the Communist Party was to take hold, right? Most probably they would have American ideals back behind it, and as well, if you to look at it from this uh, scheme, most of Middle America would not agree with it. And then the party would probably morph into something that we have as the uh, the democratic socialists that we have today. 
right? Because realistically, not even Miss Cortez would probably not be a full-blown communist because, you know, being a full-blown communist has a lot of implications behind it. It's a different idea. It's a different take on a ideology, right? It would grow and develop. Suppression of any form of idea, fundamentally, it's wrong. I do understand why they did it. And, you know, the past is the past. And I wasn't in those circumstances to say, you know, that was this the right thing to do or was this the wrong thing to do? However, in order to learn from our mistakes and in order to learn, it's trial and error. It is trial and error and it will ever be trial and error. Trial by fire is the best way to learn anything. You know, that's what my father taught me. And that's what, you know, that's what actually what I'm bringing to this campaign. Like, really, like, I don't need education. I'm going straight into it, talking to the people, working with other officials, trying to organize people all by hand with no, like, I mean, I had some experience, but no serious, you know, backing of any kind. I think to that's, answer your okay, no, no, go sorry. on. To answer, to answer. No, but to answer your question, I think that although I can't really give a definitive answer, I would have said let them let them rock because in any case it probably would have failed New York anyway. Well, that is true. I think the idea that they would have been swayed a little bit, and I'm just going to go back to that point again because it's a little bit personal to me, that the idea that they would have been swayed by the cult of America, which is against communism, it's sort of free suppression of free speech because it's a proxy way of saying, hey, don't say that. Say this, something more moderate instead. So I guess that's a whole other debate about liberty over security. If their cause is not that strong, then it's not that strong. It's as simple as that. I guess I guess power does what really What is strong will prevail forever, now and forever. If it's not unified and it doesn't want to function the way it's supposed to function, it won't function. And then in a very Darwinist thought, it will disappear into oblivion. Interesting. And that's how I think it should be. Uh, you know, same thing with my campaign. If I truly can't represent the people of New York, and I really hope I do, and I'm trying my absolute hardest to learn as much as possible, then you know what? I don't deserve the seat. And I hope it goes to someone who does deserve it. But my biggest fear right now is that the seat goes to someone who says you know, they deserve it, but in reality are backed by just individuals that know the system and just play it to their advantage and truthfully don't. I think that's my biggest fear. Yeah, I think you have a truly honest and, and a truly good mindset when it comes to this, that you're trying to do what's best for the people, the majority of the people in the state. So I think that's a very honorable aspect of your campaign. Maybe a little naive one because you don't have the most political experience, but I, I kind of, as I've obviously talked with you many times and I've been skeptical, obviously, of various steps in the in this process. Uh, I am starting to kind of warm up to this idea that you have of trial by fire because it is new and it's something we haven't seen before. And that's why I'm also disappointed in Trump. Trump could have been this Superman, in my opinion. He broke party lines. Clearly, he had various grassroots Republicans like Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio early on criticizing him heavily. These are bona fide Republicans that were criticizing him. He broke yep. party lines, and then he turned into exactly, he started collaborating with the same people that make up the swamp. So I think this really should should be a nonpartisan or bipartisan, whatever you want to say. What's that, uh, what's that, what's that Batman quote? 
it's uh, you either die a hero or you live, <laughs> live long enough to see, yourself, to see yourself become a villain. Yeah, no, but and that's that's true. It holds true. Like that. honestly, in 2016, however controversial and however much I think he was sometimes, you know, in the wrong, Donald Trump is was a huge inspiration for independent, you know, thinkers. Mm-hmm. The guy, however, once again, however, you know, loopy he is, came in broke down the door and was able to rally the entire nation within a matter of what like a year and a half he announced his running and he won and he won with a landslide Mm -hmm. hillary clinton he he against hillary clinton a person who was a married to the first lady of the vice of the president of the united states bill clinton mind you a very popular president um you know, introduced tons of policy. I think he was a very with good Obama. president. I think he was a very good president. I think Bill Clinton was a great president I, as well. I know, like, I, know, and I, obviously for the scandals, but you know, the scandals are the scandals, though. Honestly, I'll take well, every everyone has. Uh, yeah, I'll take, but I'll honestly, if we're looking at this ethically, I'll take that kind of a scandal, which could have very well also been very heavily pushed by a Republican-dominated Congress, which there was in the '90s. Um, I think that he was actually a very good compromiser. He was actually, if, if you read, obviously, whatever you can about him, he was obviously socially progressive. He didn't want to see the elite take over socially. But he was also was, he also wasn't the most harsh on the top class. And I think that's what the Democrat Party, when they cite him as the highest or greatest period of economic growth, he was actually continuing the, capital, the more capitalist free market thoughts of Reagan and then, obviously, in H.W.'s first few moments of his first term he obviously said no new taxes and then he went back on that but that kind of capitalist free free economy thought is what helped him bring through the greatest longest economic period in history i think democrats cite him for the wrong reason he only actually uh for the top one point like something 1.7 percent of people he only increased their income tax rate by three percent it was around 33 to 36 percent so he wasn't even that heavy of a taxer. He just demanded a, a slight bit more in order to get the social programs that he enacted going. So I think that's a very good example of nonpartisanism. I think. And to go on. to uh, continue on to what you were saying, he also passed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. Mm-hmm. Um, Enlighten me. Oh wait, no, no, I'm sorry. The Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which was uh, his, um, yeah, please, that was my mistake. Uh, the first one was passed by um, Linda B. Johnson. But the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which was to try to break the people's reliance on the welfare system, which was huge and, you know, imposed regulations on certain, you know, like when you need to get a job and, you know, certain criteria to, in order to, uh, you know, get welfare, which was, you know, as a Democrat who could have abused his power in that fashion, was enormous. And yeah. that's why I think he was a very popular president. I, and, you know. Yeah. I think you see him. I think you see John F. Kennedy. And I think that's really what we need right now. Huge inspiration from John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was just kind of a John. But anyway. He was uh, a John. But um, I think that's really what we need right now. I think Andrew Yang could possibly fill that role. He's kind of. Andrew a- Yang is running. Did he's, you know that? Yeah. He's he's interesting. Like Yeah. He's, so, he's interested he's in this. Interesting... And I'm actually. If it comes down to it. I'd be more than happy to work with the man. Yeah. So he is uh, definitely. Imagine that Mr. Cataldo. I, I will be... work with Andrew Yang. It would be interesting to see the uh, YouTube uh, clash or mold together on philosophies. But to continue my point, JFK, Washington, all these nonpartisan people, you know, 
I think that's what truly defines what's good for the country. I think, you know, we've kind of abandoned that totally. I think that's a great point that you bring up. So to move on to the next segment, you brought up welfare. And that's a big topic that you have. And you have a very, you know, call it unpopular, call it a hot, hot take. You have a very hot interesting, take. you have a very interesting point of view when it comes to welfare in this country. We touched on it earlier. You touched on it when you talked about Bill Clinton's policies. So talk to me about the plights of the welfare system in America. Maybe we'll do it at a local level so we can, you know, more appropriate it to your mayoral campaign. So what do you think well, about that? I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, um, you know, give a, my own quote um, that the the general consensus to strive to help the less fortunate, to further the wealth and the prosperity of an entire nation is what separates man from beast. Welfare is one of the most vital organs of a developed society. However, debates begin when decisions must be made on what is welfare and more specifically, what form it should take. The definition of welfare is vague, and the implementation in the United States political machine is a clear example of such, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the history of welfare in the United States, going back from, um, I want to I begin from in, in 1964 under the Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson's administration, because Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration's implementation of Social Security was huge and extremely important for the welfare of uh, the elderly you know, who cannot work. Yeah, actually, no. I, wait, oh, I want to just say one thing about that before you go on. Obviously, my grandmother actually was obviously alive during the period of FDR, during before the war, actually. And she waxed poetic about him when I would always talk to her. Uh, she would always say how he provided just basically instant relief, not only to people, elderly people in his, obviously, Social Security, which came as his second part of his New Deal, but also to 18-year-olds that were without a job. Yes, he, they provided to people who could not work for themselves. Exactly. You know, youth and the elderly were the biggest primary targets of this. And in 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson tried to do, uh, he tried to do the same with the... Uh, aid to families with dependent children. Oh, that was that was well. That was um, FDR, and um, the Economic Opportunity Act um, was passed by Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Please forgive me. You're good. I'll just. Wait, I just want to say yeah, something on FDR real quick. Um, that. Yeah, no, it's it's totally indicative that he, well, he was obviously a Democrat, right? He obviously ran under the Democrat Party, but more than that, I think he was fundamentally looking for what's best to take, because he had two big issues on his hand, the diplomatic position of the U.S. and the Depression. And I think despite him being called a borderline socialist, which there are arguments to say that he could have been, and I'm obviously, definitely. and I definitely don't want, I'm not associated with socialism, I don't really prefer the the obviously the concept of, you know, trying to mediate equality. But I think that he was really one of the greatest presidents that we've seen simply because he was able to just put what was best for America at the time first. I think if we had a president like Alf Landon, who was running against him, I only know that because of Hearts of Iron, obviously, um, that if we had a president that was like Alf Landon, who was running against him in 1936, I think it would have been more of a open free economy that there would have been, you know, protectionism and, and the U.S. would have kind of shrank into this, you know, totally alone, isolated, isolated and alone and non-interventionist sphere that could have, you know, totally changed the global hegemony of what was going on. Just, you know, hop skip from the pond in Europe. So I think it was 
incredible how he conducted himself as a political genius too. So go on with your point with what you were saying. I just wanted to add that. I love it. For um, but yeah, no, FDR huge. However, once again, however much we disagree with him, he what he brought to the table and what he did for the general public and for the nation as a whole was enormous. And in times of calling, he provided. That's why he's regarded as one of the greats. Uh, but this is not to say that, you know, he wasn't a little bit, you know, loony as well. He tried to pack the courts like, you know, he tried to break democracy at a certain to certain levels. Um, also, Japanese internment but, is something he's criticized. Yeah, and the Japanese internment camps, but you know, time and place, of course, you can't judge because you weren't there. True. But back to welfare. In the United States, we have what is called the equality of outcome. You know, providing for those for the less fortunate. However, you know, although I need to you know continue to discuss with more um, economic, you know, intellectuals. If you were to look at the econo- the line of the threshold of poverty in the United States, right? I'm going to read you the actual numbers because, you know, I'm I'm weird like that. Uh the poverty threshold in 1959 was $1,469. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, it was $13,011. So, however, if you adjusted for inflation, one thousand four hundred sixty-nine dollars in twenty nineteen is twelve thousand eight hundred and eighty-eight dollars and thirty cents. So, wow, the threshold. So the the value of what is being in poverty has not changed in the United States, even with all of these uh, welfare programs and new situations that we see. And, yes, and the poverty rate within the United States has not changed that much since you know you know the 50s mm-hmm. you know it's been bouncing between 15 percent, 11 percent, you know up and down but it's been roughly the same so what we can conclude is that the welfare system and this is not to say that there are not huge benefits of a welfare system and a safety net because uh in the 2008 recession if we did not have a safety net our poverty level would have been twice what it was mm-hmm. this is not to say that a safety net is not important and is not vital but the current welfare system is extremely inefficient in doing its job. What I propose is a well, form of welfare that provides equality of opportunity, the ability for the individual to work, the ability for the individual to not rely on the government, the ability for the individual to draw his own path. And for some people who are not necessarily into, like not the brightest, not the most capable, not the most economically, uh, you know, set from the get-go. You know, some people, if they're financially, you know, in a financially stable family, they have a statistically higher chance of doing well later in life. People who are not in a financially stable family have a statistically higher chance of not doing so well later in life financially. As the role of the federal government, if you want to provide welfare, you have to provide opportunity. Job training working with local leaders to um, move ba- like very low interest or no interest loans for individuals trying to start their business. There are so many things that we can do, that we can think of that are brand new and experiment with to see what is truly the best form of welfare that the United States can take mm-hmm. in order to 
by the end of it, make the entire country wealthier. Because even it doesn't matter if you're in the top one percent or in the bottom one percent. If the bottom one, if you're in the lower half, right, lower ninety percent, ninety nine percent, the top one percent would not mind the, top, the bottom becoming more wealthier because in the end they will become wealthier. If the entire nation becomes wealthier, no one is going to complain. So the first things we have to do if we want some form of welfare to work is we have to bring our jobs back from overseas. It is imperative that we do this because I've personally known many people who lost their jobs to outsourcing across the seas. And we are only making other countries wealthier. We have to bring back America and our economy back to the United States. I know I sound like a huge Trump uh, fanatic right now, but it's, in reality, if you read Marx and if you read Engels, it's not. It's not. It, you're bringing your opportunities back to the people who you are serving, and that is the first step. Bringing back our jobs and economy into the United States once again. After that, on a small local scale trying to see reforming the the equality of outcome form of welfare into an equality of opportunity form of welfare to see what truly does work. And later on, city level, state level, national level. That is the end goal. But once again, I'm a firm believer, bottom up. You can't impose something from the top down and expect it to work because there are many cracks that that block has to fill. Mm -hmm. Work with the the bricks, fill in the mortar, build up until you have a strong building. That's all I have to say. I really I mean, again. I will be. I will. I'm sorry, but I will be posting, um, you know, this doctrine and this way of thought in the future. But I cannot guarantee that even as mayor that I can go through with these plans. However, I will be trying to push them as much as humanly possible. I think that's a totally commendable approach to this, and I. It's obviously a concept we learned in Gov. This bottom up approach in order to enact major change federally. And I think that's an excellent, I think it's actually a little bit strategic that you're not just, you know, jumping for a higher federal government position that you're jumping to mayor, which is unrealistic or not unrealistic, but still <coughs> magnanimous in and of itself. But it's still a small level that you're trying to build up a program. So I, I definitely appreciate that. So um, the next question I wanted to ask you regarding welfare was minorities. And obviously we have, you know, issues with tensions between races right now um and i think that you know obviously certain groups feel like they're not being represented and obviously we know the whole shtick of what's happening in america right now so how do you think your economic opportunity incentive incentive or economic opportunity programs how do you think that will help the disenfranchised well you know you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that minority communities across the united states have been neglected to some degree uh, financially, stop biting. Don't do that. Not healthy. Um, <laughs> He's already infringing um, on me. Already infringing. Yeah. Hasn't even hit the um, office yet. <laughs> so, in order to be, again, once again, as I believe, a true proponent of equality of opportunity, you have to sometimes give opportunities and education above all education to those who do not have it because in my opinion education is key to any level of progress mm -hmm. right i personally believe in self-education i you know read a fair amount you know i have a bunch of new books on hand and on deck 
and you know i believe in that sort but some people don't are not you know learn that from they don't learn that from their parents because some people are like just don't have that and you know especially in minority communities the percentage of a single a single parent household is larger than in uh, whiter communities so everything starts with education pushing education reforms to truly benefit those who are disenfranchised is the first step in creating a fairer society after that you know once again, trying to push uh, loans for individuals at a no interest would be the you know the greatest goal. But a low interest would be you know the starting line in order to incentivize business creation within communities. That would be the pinnacle because once again, if you have a population, if you have a community that re- is a tax-paying community, services such as policing, local policing. Services such as um, a sanitation would be far more available to them and would create healthier, brighter communities for all races. Mm-hmm. It does not, in my opinion, the fact that we, we even uh, have this like situation where we have communities based off of race that are separated wealth and wealth is preposterous to me. The fact that there is barriers, economic barriers, just, you know, if you cross a street to me is bizarre. Wow. And I really do think that the equality of outcome, you know, the, that form of welfare is one of the hu- the biggest reasons for that um, for that existence. So providing business opportunities and resources to those who want it and, you know, who are really trying to search for it and educating the people on those resources is the first step. Mm-hmm. And it's only through employment and just security financial security on all individuals then we can begin to have individual thought as they will not rely on the government or no one will rely on the the government for anything and individualism as a whole would begin to flourish amongst all communities especially across new york I think that's an excellent yeah that 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 was definitely a mouthful I think that was I I think that's a definitely do I do I talk do I like uh repeat myself no, no right no these are okay, different good. concepts that obviously there's the same philosophy that you're going towards which is individualism and independence which I think is something we desperately need right now but I think that these are obviously different solutions that you have to the problems and being that you are a centrist you clearly have the ability to look at the issue from both sides and all faces so I don't think you're repeating yourself at all when you obviously have a little bit. Yeah, more I just, you know, like, again, I'm not really used to, like, this whole podcasting thing. I neither am I. It's fact, open to critiques. So whatever it is. Um, but, no, I don't think you're repeating yourself at all. I think the detail is necessary as people, you know, even as today, the detail is very necessary because, you know, you could say a sentence even, a miss, or just establish a point, and it will get misinterpreted because the media, for example, say there was a media corporation reporting on this podcast, which fingers crossed there isn't um but you know even if there is it could get you know what you say could get misinterpreted you really need to clarify it and make an intellectual point now more than ever i see you have something to say so go ahead um you know just to say it's my new favorite quote uh nietzsche said there are no facts only interpretations wow and this is like no you know this is the cannot be more widespread in today's society where people are looking at something as you know bipartisan as you know cop killings 
right? The man died, and we still fight over it instead of trying to find some sustainable solution to the problem. Yep. Which I find, I, I find ridiculous, but, you know, interests. Yeah. Pers- um, it's one of the flaws. It's one of the flaws of, of just truly a free society is that it's susceptible, very susceptible. It is so susceptible. Obviously, that's I something we, we can have agree to do. That. So either way, we're uh, nearing the hour mark. I'm sure you have plenty of things to oh. do for your mayoral campaign. Unfortunately, unfortunate. Unfortunate. Really so, uh, if you have any closing statements, anything you want to drive home, reinforce for the people, get them to truly vote for you and believe in your cause, say it now. Don't believe in me. Believe. In your ability to think Mm -hmm. and in your own sense of individualism if you do live in New York I do hope that you know you come to uh, my you know social media to some degree later on we will be actually having uh, rallies small ones of course but you know if you can you know come and see for yourself but do not take everything that you see to heart immediately always be skeptical always Try to learn as much as you can about a particular topic before you say something. Because in this day and age, it is extremely dangerous what you say, and people will use it against you. So be best armed. And to that, I say thank you, Cataldo. Once again, I appreciate you for having me on this show, and I appreciate you know everything that you're doing, and you know hopefully we will uh, meet again one day. I, you know, I want to obviously extend that gratitude to you as well. I think you're truly an inspirational candidate. I have full hope that you go exactly where you need to go with this campaign. And I think that you have the full ability as a charismatic speaker, as someone who people can look up towards. I think you have the full ability to rally the support you need. And I heavily encourage you check out his socials. And I heavily encourage that you attend his rallies or whatever he has planned in the future. You're obviously very ambitious. All will be posted on the social media. All will be posted on the social media. You're very ambitious. You have a lot going on. So (laughs) thank you so much for carving out the time for this, albeit measly little thing. Um, It's not measly by no means. Whatever it is. I want to stay humble, but... Um, thank you for carving out the time to all the supporters who have been watching the videos listening on Spotify, iTunes, and etc thanks again, keep up the support I'll be sure to give consistent episodes like I have been every Thursday around 7-ish, I don't really have a schedule but thanks again for all the support and obviously everyone stay safe